I will be sharing some things with you from the Word this morning. Uh, Brad will resume his exposition of Romans uh, next Sunday. But before we come to the Lord's table this morning, uh, I want to invite you to consider with me a passage uh, in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And you'll immediately uh, recognize as you uh, turn there that uh, this text that I have chosen is uh, in the middle of one of uh, Jesus' most iconic messages uh, entitled The Sermon on the Mount. And uh, before I read verses 19 to 24, which is to be the focus of our attention this morning, uh, I want to just remind you a little bit about the context uh, leading up to this. And I just want to point out four verses each in turn and simply do nothing but just have you glance at them and read them, and then I'll read the text uh, before us today. In his Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verse 20, he makes this statement, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And so he's looking at the religious status quo and realizing they have been living in such a way that they're actually leading people to a misunderstanding of how you relate to God, and that, of course, they have been, throughout his ministry, very much the target of uh, much critique by Jesus, and some of it quite harsh. But here he states that your righteousness needs to be something different from what you observe amongst your religious leaders. Then we come to chapter 6, verse 1, we read, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Verse 5 of chapter 6, When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Chapter 6, verse 16, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. And so with those punctuated statements, we now come to verse 19 where Jesus gives another exhortation, and it has to do with material possessions or treasure. And He's not uh, speaking of the possessions that are the basic necessities of life that he had addressed back in verses 25 to 34 about not worrying about what you'll eat, your clothing, and uh, what you'll drink, and those kinds of things. Here he's addressing when we start to have at our disposal material possessions that are even beyond our basic needs that he refers to as, as treasure. And so I'll read now verses uh, 19 through 24. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. I read that from the New American Standard Bible as far as the English translation. So at this point in his sermon, Jesus is stating that if you want your righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you must use your treasure for the kingdom of God as much as it is within your power, that you use your treasure in a way that promotes the cause of Christ. And so he sets out here in these few verses really three contrasts. There's three pairs, three contrasts. And it's obviously a heaven and earth um, followed by eyesight that is good and eyesight that is bad, and then finally, two different masters, which one are you going to serve? And so as we move through them, I would like us to really glean some, I think, very important principles uh, for our life as Christians. The first contrast is in verses 19 through 21, where basically his command is, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And then he mentions some of the things that tend to erode uh, away at those treasures even when we do uh, lay them up. Uh, what he is giving an injunction against here is not saving money. Uh, he's not speaking against life insurance or investing for your future or making provision for your family as well as provision for perhaps matters of ministry. But what he's talking about is laying up treasure in the sense that you are um, stockpiling it, stashing it, hoarding it, amassing it, particularly for self-centered purposes. Uh, the phrase also is translated, according to the Greek dictionaries, as, as accumulating or heaping up uh, treasure. And it's interesting, the way Jesus states it, when you look at the original text that it's recorded in by Matthew, what Jesus is saying is, treasure not for yourselves treasure. And so he's using the verb and the noun, don't be verbally treasuring up the noun, the treasure. Now, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, uh, God says in numerous places in the Scripture, that he is the one who gives prosperity, and he teaches that we are to exercise a responsible stewardship with the treasure, the material possessions that he enables us and allows us to have. Uh, we are to enjoy and wisely use what God makes available to us to fulfill our responsibility to his kingdom as well as and taking care of our loved ones. Now, when it comes to stockpiling treasure, there are questions that I cannot answer all of them today, but they're questions that at least need to be stated and questions that we need to grapple with. Questions such as, when I'm dealing with my own amount of material possessions or treasure, 
how much is enough? Or what is a need or a necessity and what is a luxury? And the Bible doesn't teach that we should never have luxuries, but what luxuries do we choose to enjoy or not? Or when do pursuing when does pursuing luxuries end up catapulting us into a lifestyle of overindulgence? Now, while these are challenging and at times convicting questions, my point here this morning is that it is essential that we be asking ourselves these questions through all of the seasons of our lives. I don't think we can ever get very far from it that we need to keep assessing how we handle our money and whatever other material possessions we have, property, etc. Of course, Jesus, when he says and exhorts to not store up treasure, uh, he gives a reason because there's problems that come along with storing up a lot of treasure. And it's quite obvious that he has in mind what in the ancient Near East was the typical way that people accumulated wealth. And those three main ways that people accumulated wealth was, one, believe it or not, was clothing, garments. In fact, when Jesus is dying on the cross, what are the soldiers doing? They are casting lots for his, for his clothing. I mean, garments and clothing was considered uh, something valuable to have, and people who were wealthy had very nice and lots of clothing. Uh, secondly was grain. Uh, there's parables about people storing up grain that we might get to at some future message. But um, you know, the parable of the rich farmer comes to mind. And so grain, as good as it was to have it, it's vulnerable. Uh, there's certain things that can deprive you of all of the resources that that grain represents. Um, the third thing that was valuable, of course, was precious metal, gold and silver, you know, in particular. And, of course, they didn't have safe deposit boxes down at Wells Fargo in those days, so their safe deposit box was typically digging something in the floor of their house and burying it and hiding it in their house. And, in fact, um, in Jesus' day, one of the ways that burglars would function would be actually to dig through the mud wall of a house or even some of the sun-dried brick and get entrance into the house trying to find whatever money or treasure that that homeowner had. In fact, it's interesting, uh, the, the Greeks had a word for it. Uh, their word uh, for a burglar was literally a mud digger because he was someone who would dig through the walls of the houses, you know, to gain entrance. And so when we think about garments, grain, and precious metals, Jesus hits on every one. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth or rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And so we live in a world, whether it's, whether it's termites or typhoons or tornadoes or crop disease or soil erosion or chinch bugs or whatever it is, uh, what we are storing up, there's a certain vulnerability that we can lose it. And of course, in our country, uh, back during the Great Depression, people learned that banks weren't as secure as they thought. And some people lost everything. 
And so there's a certain uh, deception that can creep in with how we handle storing up treasure and what it is we see that as accomplishing for us in our lives. Nothing of a physical nature lasts in this world forever. I don't know if you recognize the name Samuel Rutherford, but he was one of the four main clergymen who um, crafted the Westminster Confession of Faith. And at one time he wrote, Build your nest in no tree here, for the Lord of the forest has condemned the whole woods to be demolished. And so, no matter how long we live and how much we accumulate, we know ultimately that's not something that you take with you on into eternity, at least not tangibly. Uh, we can certainly be rewarded and benefit. And of course, we do all we can to kind of stem the tide. Uh, we don't want you know, our patio furniture rusting, so we paint it with rust-oleum, because rust-oleum will you know, protect it from you know, rusting. We use mothballs, we use mousetraps, we put security systems on our houses, we use pesticides, we try to put our money in a trustworthy bank. I don't care how good that Thompson's wood preservator is, that deck is not going to last forever without you having to redo it, and we've probably all done that at some point. So Jesus says here, that in light of that fact, we should not be preoccupied with just storing up treasure, stockpiling it. And then he makes the contrast. As vulnerable and as transient as earthly materials are, there's something that is permanent. And what's permanent is what he calls treasure that you store up in heaven. Investments made for God's purposes will bring eternal dividends. I would also explain it this way. To store up treasure in heaven is to distribute and share the riches and material possessions God has given us in a way that further builds and promotes the cause of Christ. And of course, that would be through His church, certainly missionaries and mission agencies and other Christian organizations, institutions of learning, where their purpose for existence is to promote the cause of Christ. And from what Jesus says, the greater the investment here, the greater the reward awaits us when we get to heaven. So the more you send into glory, as it were, the greater the glory when you arrive. So if your treasure is on earth for us, then we are in the midst of going away from it ultimately. But if our treasure is in heaven, we are in the midst of going to it. That's how I understand Jesus' statement here. And so that suggest a generosity on the part of the child of God to the one who wants to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who is, is so quotable, but C.S. Lewis once wrote, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. 
And I, I chuckle when I read that, but that's so much uh, like him. And so it, it does beg the question, you know, for all of us, uh, what do we do with the money that we have? In fact, as we're giving a report uh, to you all at the first of the year, like we typically do about the status of our church budget, um, I don't want to talk about the church budget, but what I want to talk about is one of our meetings a couple of months ago, one of the elders said about the money we have in the bank as a church, why has the Lord given us this money? What is the purpose of this money we have sitting in CDs and in the bank accounts? And that's a good question. And I think it's a question that we need to be asking as a church and the elders particularly, and I think that each of us should be asking the same question. For what purpose has God enabled me to earn this amount of money to the point where I've got more than my needs, but I have excess and I'm saving and storing up treasure? But then there's something else here, and it's not just the prospect of eternal reward. And it's verse 21. Verse 21 to me is a piercing verse. Because in verse 21, he then adds... For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the heart of the matter is just that. It's your heart and my heart. And Jesus is saying that his assessment is that when we possess and invest our material possessions, and it becomes the object of our attention and our care. At the end of the day, no matter what we say, we believe. Our income and expenses reveal what is important to us. Where our treasure is, that's where our heart is attached. And this is why I said some of these questions we have to ask ourselves are potentially convicting. Because I think it's very easy to kind of stop asking the question and just keep enlarging uh, what it is that we're trying to hold on to. The famous uh, prince of preachers uh, in England, Charles Spurgeon, once said, nothing influences a man so much as that which he calls his own. So, it's a declaration of the heart. And as I said, no matter what I say I believe, and I'll just point the finger at myself at this point, no matter what I say I believe, if you looked at our bank account and our resources, that would tell you what I believe is really the most important thing in life, and that's true for every one of you as well. He gives a second contrast in verses 22 and 23. And... <clears throat> Actually, as I was going over these verses again this week and, uh, and putting this message together, uh, I just had my annual um, visit to my eye doctor a week before last. I go once a year and have my eyes examined, and I've learned I've got a cataract. I guess like most people in their 70s get eventually. Priscilla just had cataract surgery on both eyes this summer. But uh, maybe your doctor does this. Whenever I leave, they have me fill out a postcard that they mail to me the next year. It's time for you to come back, you know, for your checkup. And the postcard they send me says this, healthy eyes are part of a healthy body. Regular eye exams can help you maintain your best vision, keep your eyes healthy, and aid in the detection of some diseases. 
and provide vacation money for, no, um, for your doctor. Um, but that statement, healthy eyes are part of a healthy body, is what Jesus is saying here in verses 22 and 23, except he's not talking about the physical vision, he's talking about spiritual perception. So Jesus uses the eye of the body, this organ for sight, to or organ for sight physically to make a spiritual point. And he states that it's through the eye that the body is filled with light, and we have our vision and the images of the world around us that come to us. And our vision, that which, that which we see, will be unhindered if the eye is, what he says here, literally clear. The eye of the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, is the way the New American Standard uh, puts it, if you have a marginal note, uh, sometimes it's literally just if your eye is single. It means to be single in purpose and focused on, on one thing. If you have a healthy eye, you see things clearly. If a cataract goes unaddressed, things get cloudy. It's possible with our spiritual perception for our vision to get cloudy, and what can cloud it is an imbalanced focus on our material possessions. I think it was Shakespeare who once wrote, the eyes are the window to your soul. And we want to have eyes that are healthy and clear. And we want to have that kind of spiritual vision that is healthy uh, and clear. I said there's a contrast with each pair. Well, that's the healthy eye. Then there's the eyesight that's not so good. Verse 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So we have physical eyes to illumine our physical existence. And so we have a, a spiritual eyesight to guide morally and spiritually. But if that light becomes darkened, by too much preoccupation with earthly material things, then he says it's a great darkness. You know, just um, a couple of Sundays ago, we did our last of the seven churches of Revelation study in the adult Bible class at 9 a.m. on Sundays. And it was the church of Laodicea. And it's interesting, when Jesus is really exhorting that church, one of the things he says to them in Revelation 3 is this, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So they were taking such confidence and to the point of arrogance about their own wealth. And that is one of the pitfalls of having a lot of money, to be frank. And the Scripture says this clearly tends to lead us to think that we are not dependent on anybody, including the Lord. In fact, I wanted to read you uh, one verse here that I skipped over, but I'll, I'll come back to it. Um, 
So there's this potential for us to really needing, we need to have eyes to see. We just simply need to have eyes to see. So, so far what Jesus is saying in these first two contrasts, as the, the first, there's an eternal reward in the future in heaven. And then secondly, there is a temporal reward or benefit by having the right kind of vision in the present uh, to see the value of money, material possessions, and with the mindset of what would God have me to do with it. The third contrast is in verse 24. And I know you all are familiar with this verse because it's often quoted. Jesus says, our relationship to money is crucial because you can only have one master. Earthly possessions and treasures always vie for ownership. And Jesus sets it forth this way with the contrast. You can only be a slave to one master. And typically in the ancient world, a slave was not owned by several people. A slave was owned by one person. And Jesus' point here is that either you're going to serve the one or the other. You cannot keep your feet in both worlds. In fact, when he states he will um, hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one or despise the other, uh, some translations say he will hold to one or to the other. And it means to line up face to face with one man as so against another. And in another place, you know, Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. You know, there's no middle ground. Since we've been acknowledging the Reformation this last week, and even with the first part of the film this morning, uh, Brad's favorite reformer, John Calvin, uh, once stated, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. Either despise the one or to be or be devoted to one. And so we're, we're self-deceived if we think that we really can just straddle the fence in this regard. And you'll notice I've not said anything and will never say anything about answering the question for you, how much is enough or how much is too much or when does saving to be responsible to take care of your family become hoarding and stockpiling for either uh, wanting to keep up with the Joneses or pursue the American dream or to indulge in all your favorite uh, hobbies or whatever it might be. That's, my point as a pastor is that you need to be asking yourselves these questions and asking the Holy Spirit to bring guidance and conviction on how you handle the money he's allowed you to have. Which, by the way, I heard someone say this years ago. It's not a matter of how much I give to the work of God's kingdom. It's how much he's allowed me to keep. And I think that's an important turn of phrase there. Jesus is not purposing to squelch all desire and ambition for people to succeed in their careers and to earn greater amounts of money. But he is urging us to redirect how we think we're going to handle it, what we're going to do with it. And I don't believe Jesus is stifling material uh, aspirations. He's 
reminding and offering a superior goal and reward with these things. There's an Aramaic term for worldly possessions or property, and it's that term mammon that appears in so many translations. Uh, you cannot serve God uh, and mammon. I, I've heard some of you uh, have discovered in your own Bible study online uh, a very well-known pastor and Bible commentator from the uh, 15th and 16th centuries, Matthew Henry. And um, Matthew Henry stated, poor people are as much in danger from an inordinate desire towards the wealth of the world as the rich from an inordinate delight in it. Speaking of Matthew Henry, I, to show you how this guy thought and the way he handled the finances that he had at his disposal, apparently uh, there was an incident where he one time was walking home and he was accosted and he was robbed. And um, he returned home after this robbery and wrote this in his diary. Lord, I thank you that I have never been robbed before, that although they took my money, they spared my life, that although they took everything, it wasn't very much, that it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. You know, it seemed to me he was holding things loosely and um, how he handled uh, his personal resources. Uh, Luther, still Reformation acknowledgement, Martin Luther responded to those who interpreted Jesus' remarks here as forbidding the acquiring of wealth. He called them crazy saints to think that that's what Jesus' point is here. But, of course, we know there's lots and lots and lots of passages that address the whole issue of money and material possessions. But I do want to add this cross-reference because it so much pertains and I think goes hand-in-hand with Jesus' comments here. When Paul wrote to Timothy, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life Indeed, that's in 1 Timothy 6. A few verses earlier, he had said, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Years ago when I was... uh, teaching in First Timothy, this was like 20 years ago, apparently several academies in Australia launched a study about the influence of materialism in a person's life. And the, the results of their study was fascinating. In fact, the title to it, Materialism is Linked to Depression and Anger, is what this study revealed. And of course, the depression was either not having enough or not keeping up with those around you that you were jealous uh, or coveted what they had, or the fact that once they gained it, it somehow lost value, whether it was a car that wore out or whatever. But it's interesting that they would find that the pursuit 
of material wealth often was linked with depression and anger. And uh, that seems to go hand in hand with uh, Paul's comment when he says, by longing for it, they've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And this applies to everyone. Did you notice the emphasis in verse 24? Because Jesus says that no one can serve two masters, and again at the end, you cannot serve God and mammon. So he really uh, emphasizes this twice. I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis one more time. He said, prosperity is good campaigning weather for the devil. And, of course, I think we can fill in the blanks how that uh, could be true. We are liable, I think, to try and serve both when our spiritual perception is clouded. All of us have the capacity to rationalize. And when I say all of us, I mean all of us, including me. We all have to struggle to not get swept up in the riptide of what is touted by all the advertisers as the American dream and the good life. Back in the 80s, when Ronald Reagan was president, uh, his financial policies were labeled Reaganomics. Some of his critics called it voodoo economics. Uh, in our current day, we're hearing the phrase Bidenomics uh, being tossed around. But Jesus has presented here divine-nomics. Giving to the kingdom of God is a part of the good works that we're to be engaged in, which as followers of Christ, we are told in several places, we will be assessed by Jesus and rewarded with greater or lesser reward when we stand before him for what we have done with all of the resources in our life, not just our money, but our skills, our time, and all of these things. But you know, this principle of divine-nomics, it has another application that the apostle gives us that is reflected in this table before us. And it's this. Do you remember Paul saying this? Well, actually, before I quote Paul, this matter of greater and lesser reward I have pondered this for decades, literally. I don't know what that's going to look like. When we stand before Jesus, there's the wonderful joy and thrill of being in his presence and us being glorified to the point that we're like him. And yet there is this assessment that we all have to stand before him, give an account. And so I don't know, well, how sad am I going to be if I realize that some of my things I thought were so worthwhile didn't end up having that much eternal value. Will, will I momentarily, will you momentarily have like a sadness or feel like oh, I've disappointed him and then get over it and go on to glory? I'm, I'm not sure how all that plays out. I just know that we do give an account. And I wonder if it's possible that a some of us would be almost like the character Oscar Schindler. You know, a movie came out uh, back in the uh, mid-90s, called Schindler's List. Um, I don't know if you saw it. Uh, I happened to be out of town with a pastor friend in another city when it was released. We went to see it. And uh, when I got back, I just thought, you know, I really want my family to see this. In fact, this is kind of a... Actually, our older son is here from Brazil this weekend, and of course Joel is here. 
and uh, they have teased me about this over the years. You learn this as a father that when your kids grow to adulthood, they remember things that they can make fun of you about. But uh, my birthday was on a Saturday that year. It was March 12th of that year. And so we got up Saturday morning, and I informed the family that what I wanted for my birthday is I wanted us to go out and spend the morning raking and collecting all the leaves and, and weeding the whole front yard. Then I wanted us all to shower, go out to eat lunch, and then go see Schindler's List. Well, that, that's the birthday present I wanted. Well, for some reason, they thought this was odd. And uh, now, maybe nobody in here relates to that. I suspect Brad might, because he likes history like I do. So maybe, I'm not going to ask your kids whether, but I kind of think that you might be a partner in crime to make that kind of a decision. <laughs> but it was about the Holocaust, and it was very, much of it was very historically accurate, and I just thought it was a, a compelling uh, movie. But the point, I, I digress, sorry. As I get older, I do it more. But... Um, at the end of the movie, Oscar Schindler was an industrialist, and he ran factories, and he was a member of the Nazi party, but he became very uh, guilty about what was being done to the Jewish people, so he made it a point to start hiring more and more Jews to be working in a more uh, clean and safe environment, and he kept uh, writing all the documentation to keep them employed by him so they wouldn't be carried off to the camps. And, <coughs> excuse me, and by the time the war came to an end, he personally had uh, helped save over 1,200 Jewish people by using this factory in that way. And there's a scene near the end of the movie where he's uh, going out to his car and um, all the employees in the factory are flooding out and gather around to say farewell to him because the Allies are coming and everything's about to go down for Germany. And as he's going to get in the car, the other thing that I didn't mention is he kept using money to buy the freedom of these people to work in this factory. So he was paying Nazi officials so much per person. And as he's going to get into the car, he looks down at his watch. He said, how many more? How many more could I have saved if I had sold this gold watch? And what about this ring? I mean, would that have gotten three more people? And he's just going through this agonizing introspection that, yes, he had purchased a lot of people and saved their lives, but how many more could he have done if he had done more? And I've often wondered if somehow that might be an element in standing before the Lord one day, uh, being assessed for what I've done, and maybe having this flash of recollection that there's maybe so much more I could have done. You need to put that Schindler's List thing as a footnote. Maybe we shouldn't even put it out there for public consumption on the website, but um, my mind has gone in that direction. Um, <clears throat> but this is the verse. This is more important when we think about the table this morning. Paul wrote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And of course, the obvious parallel in this statement is that when he says that Jesus was rich, he's talking about Jesus' preexistence, being uh, in the Trinity, with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus acknowledges that in his high priestly prayer when he prays, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so he was rich, 
and his status and being in the glories of the presence of the Father. But yet, Paul says that for our sake he became poor. And I understand that to mean he became a man. He entered human history. He laid aside his divine prerogatives. Philippians 2, he emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant. So Jesus impoverished himself, who was once rich, in order to make us rich. And of course, we become rich through his poverty because of what he accomplished at the cross. We receive his righteousness because of his death and resurrection, which is symbolized in this table. And of course, we should seek to be imitators of Jesus in all things. And there was never a more generous gesture than Jesus coming and becoming poor, as Paul says, for our sake. Brad's, I don't know if it's his favorite verse, but I've heard him say it a lot. Uh, he, he took him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's a part of divine-nomics. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that by your will and your providence you have preserved so many of Jesus' teachings in the New Testament so that we can read these words today. And Lord, Jesus' words are comforting, they're reassuring, they are unsettling. And for some of us, perhaps on this day, even very convicting. But Lord, I pray that you would help us under the guidance of the Word and of your Spirit uh, to really look at our financial situation, our jobs, our income, your church, your work. Lord, may we respond to what your will is for us and how much you allow us to keep. Thank you for Jesus paying the ultimate price. And as Peter tells us, it's not by silver or gold that we're redeemed, but by the very precious blood of a lamb. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.